Have you ever felt completely overwhelmed when looking at the legal documents for a real estate syndication? Well, today's episode, I'm super grateful. We've got a phenomenal teacher, trainer, and attorney with decades of experience, Gene Throwbridge, who's going to be diving into some specifics on what you need to be looking for when it comes to investing in a security. What goes into that PPM? What goes into the story and the rules and the operating agreement? And most importantly, what are some of those key things that you want to be looking out for and understanding that go into setting those expectations for your investment? So if you're ready to learn that, let's get into it. This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Stephen Pesavento. For as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. Investors, have you grabbed your copy of the Passive Investor Playbook yet? If you haven't, I recommend you go pick up the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at theinvestormindset.com slash passive. You can grab that in the show notes right down below as we've interviewed tons of the top experts and brought together all of the knowledge that we have on passive investing so that you can lay a foundation for yourself to make sure you're making the right decisions in your investing career. And you can grab that guide at theinvestormindset.com slash passive. I hope you'll take advantage of it. Let's get back to it. All right, guys, welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Pestavento. Today, I'm very excited. I got in the studio, Gene Throwbridge, who is a phenomenal, experienced syndication lawyer to dive into some really, really strong stuff with us. How you doing, Gene? Stephen, I'm doing very good this morning. It's, uh, I know where you are. I'm out in Southern California at 6.30, so I'm having my first cup of coffee, Stephen. There you go. No better way to get the morning going than with a good conversation about real estate and law. And <laughs> as you guys know, Gene is the founding partner of Thoroughbridge Law Group, where he concentrates on syndication of commercial investment real estate through both debt and equity. And between his individual syndication practice and the firm's legal practice, they've written offerings for more than $5 billion of money raised. And what I'm really excited is that Gene was a former syndicator. He raised money for 10 years of investor capital through the broker-dealer community. And he really understands deeply what is most important when investing in these deals, what you need to be looking for as a passive investor, what kind of legal documents you need to put together as an active investor, and all of the things in between. So we're going to dive into some syndication 101 kind of uh, specifically some of the pro tips for passive investors and what you really need to know. So you ready to dive into things, Gene? I am. I got to tell you, Stephen, that uh, my uh, syndication career started in the Twin Cities with, uh, I, I, was, I was living in the Twin Cities of Minnesota when I was younger, graduated from college there and, and bought some uh, single family houses as investments and uh, didn't care much for the management of those. So uh, three, uh, three fellows I went to college with at a college called St. John's uh, University and I put, we, each, we all put $10,000 down to collectively, so we put $40,000. And back then <laughs> we bought a 10 unit apartment building in West St. Paul. 
And that, that was the beginning of my syndication career. Like so many other syndicators, I didn't have enough money to go and buy the bigger property I wanted to buy by myself. So I had to pool money. And that's how I got started working with investors. And uh, that carried on uh, for a long time in that part of my career. Then, as as you said, I left that career and uh, (laughs) sat around the kitchen table one day with my wife. And I said, what am I going to do for the last 15 years of my working life? Let's go to law school. So at 45, I went to law school. And that was 27 years ago. <laughs> my 15-year career last has lasted so far in 27 years. And I love being a lawyer. In and all I've ever done is syndication securities work. And I, as you said, I bring the the practical experience to uh to the people I represent. And that's, uh, that's great. Well, it's such a unique, it's such a unique path to go down starting out, you know, Hey, what's up St. John's. I'm a Johnny as well for all you Minnesotans out there. (laughs) Great to have another Johnny on here. I know you graduated from uh, U of M as well, but um, it's so great to have somebody in the legal chair who also was a syndicator, who's been through that on the, on the other side as an investor and as a, an operator. So I think that's really, really strong. So tell me, kicking things off, what's been the single factor, the one thing that's opened up the most opportunities or led you to the greatest success in business? Um, Education-based marketing. I uh, do, as you know, I do a lot of educational stuff and I've been doing it for years, uh, during my 40 years as a CCIM teacher and uh, my own workshops in this 27 years as, as an attorney, I provide education. And uh, by educating and mentoring, I, uh, I get my fair uh, number of clients. So, and I love it. Mentoring is, is a big deal to me. Uh, education is a big deal. And that's, that's where I get all my, uh, my stuff. And I think that um, I know that your audience is a lot of passive investors, and I want to talk about that too. But for the syndicators, the people who want to put together deals, uh, there's no problem with going out and educating people. You know, everyone worries about advertising and all that and restrictions on advertising. But um, you can always do generic generic presentations and tell people. I used to go around and, and do public seminars and tell people about the different types of entity structures that were out there. If you weren't going to buy real estate on your own, how could you invest in real estate? Through REITs, through limited partnerships, through LLCs, and just explain how those worked. And that was, uh, that was, that was great. So there are a lot of things you can do that are generic that let you stand in front of people. But you know, Stephen, I think there are four questions that your passive investors should ask. Uh, can, we, can we talk about those to start with? Yeah, let's definitely talk about those. And right before we do, though, would you talk to me a little bit about your definition of syndication and why it's so regulated uh, so closely and why that's important? Well, sure. I get a lot of what I call homework calls. People call me and say, I'm thinking about doing a deal or I'm thinking about investing in someone's mm-hmm. deal. And uh, I want it's going to be five, six, seven, ten people. And I don't want it to be a syndication. Well, that's the wrong question. Uh, two or more people 
combining their resources and their experience for some business purpose is a syndication. Uh, for example, you go to the movies or you watch a movie on Netflix at the beginning, they have all these different companies that were involved in making the movie. Well, that's a syndication. Uh, I can think of a number of things, and maybe even uh, flying in a commercial airplane when 146 of your best friends all buy a ticket and we hire equipment and professional management to take us somewhere. That's really a syndication. But the real question is, is I want to put 10 people together and I don't want it to be a security. So that's, that's the deal. We go from syndication to security based on the fact that um, someone is managing the passive investor's money. And to your point, the federal government way back in 1933 mm -hmm. felt that there was a need to put some regulations in place to protect the investors when someone else is running their money. And so there's two, two rules we work on today. One rule is basically you've got to give the investor full disclosure. That's all the material facts so the investor can make an informed decision before they invest. That's one rule. Mm -hmm. And the second rule is we need to regulate who is selling securities. So that takes you into licensing and, and all that stuff that goes on. So uh, those are the rules we still, we still work with today. And it's all about protecting the investors. Yet, Stephen, but when the rule was written, they realized there was a whole group of investors who didn't need protection from the government. And they called those accredited investors, rich and smart people. And that's still the same. In fact, we're seeing an expansion of a sponsor's ability to raise money if they just concentrate on the rich and smart people. So that's everything is the same. Nothing's changed in almost, what, 90 years now? And it's built to protect the investors. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's amazing. It's amazing, and it's so good to understand why they've separated out accredited versus sophisticated investors. Because if you're sitting on the other side and you're thinking to yourself, well, hey, I'm accredited, or maybe I'm sophisticated, well, what's the difference and why does it matter? And it, what it sounds like, and, and my understanding of it is that it's they want to protect the folks who maybe have more to lose. Right. And the thought is that if you're an accredited investor, you're making significant amount of money. You most likely have the experience and the ability to lose that money, but you have the experience to know what risks you're taking. Is, is that pretty accurate? Yes. The accredited investor, the rich and smart person has, uh, the government feels the, uh, the experience and education to ask all the questions they need I mean, you could take it to a logical extent where I, I don't work in this with this thought, but if you were putting together an investment with five accredited investors, let's say, and I'm only picking five at a number, it could be eight, it could be whatever, uh -huh. and all accredited, you really don't need to write a private placement memorandum because the government says, well, those people are smart enough to ask the questions of you. And if you give them good answers, they're smart enough and they can withstand the risk to invest on their own. Uh, one of the reasons I went to a small number like five or seven is that you still as a sponsor, my clients still have the requirements for full disclosure. 
And my feeling is you can't do full disclosure that's all the same at the same time unless you put it in writing. And then you'll never be able to defend yourself uh, if challenged, if you didn't put it in writing. And chances are the investors didn't hear it all. They didn't hear it all the right way. Uh, they're making some decisions based on, you know, uh, different information. So put it in writing, give it to the investors, and everyone knows what's going on. I think that's, that's the only way I work. I won't do a deal if, my, if the potential client doesn't want to write a private placement memorandum. And we're going to talk about what's in that. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that. And what what's really important for investors to know is that the reason that there's these big, long legal documents is because that's the form of disclosure that Gene's talking about here, where all of the information is put in, all of the potential risks that should be disclosed that the SEC has decided and other attorneys have decided needs to be disclosed to investors. That's all put in one document. And then, of course, there's the operating agreement, all the pieces that end up right. going along with that, which we'll talk about in a second. But what do investors need to know before investing in a, in a security within a syndication? Okay, four questions. Absolutely the most important questions. And this is important for investors because they need to ask these questions. And it's also important for the sponsors and syndicators so they better have an answer, right? <laughs> First question, Stephen, I like your deal. I've got the $50,000. If I invest my money with you, Stephen, what happens if something happens to you? Mm-hmm. Number one question. Number one question. Every once in a while, someone calls me and asks me to look at documents because they're getting ready to invest. And I, I don't do that as part of my practice, but I go through these questions with them. And I say, if you looked at the document, what's the structure of the manager? If it's just one person, don't, don't invest. All sorts of things can happen to that one person who really has your money and not, not dying. That's, that happens, but very seldom. It's other things that can happen. Bankruptcy, divorce, lawsuits, illness. I had one sponsor who I had to take over for who hit his head on a rock skiing up in Park City and spent a year upside down in traction in a hospital and came out a paraplegic. Mm. So uh, you can, <laughs> a lot of things can happen. First question, is there continuity? Does that protect your money? Number two, Hey, Stephen, uh, have you done this before? <laughs> All of us, including myself, had to answer that question. No, I haven't done it before, but I have. I have something going for me. And in your first deal, a lot of the investors are going to know you and trust you and invest because of you. That's what investors want to do. They want to invest because of the person. So you have to look and see what the, what the track record is. And so that's why it's so important for a sponsor, I think, to get their first deal done. So you can say, hell yes, I did. I've done this before once. You know, that's okay. That's a start. Yeah. Third question. Absolutely. Hey, Stephen, are you going to have any skin in the game? Are you going to put any money in this deal? And today that means two things. That means, number one, maybe there's some cash coming from Stephen that's going in the deal. And number two, maybe Stephen is being asked by the lender to sign the mortgage. 
So there are two ways you can have skin in the game. And I think that uh, an investor should ask that uh, question. Now, it's somewhat of a marketing question. If, in fact, the investor doesn't have, the sponsor doesn't have any skin in the game, why is that? And uh, does that really make a difference? But it's a great question to ask. And then the fourth question is, from the investor standpoint, Stephen, what happens if something happens to me? Is there liquidity or how am I going to get my money back? Because, you know, in, in reality, if you take 20 or 30 investors in a deal that lasts for seven years, something's going to happen to one of the investors and you're going to have to have liquidity. So Stephen's answer is, well, we have an operating agreement that's professionally drafted and uh, in Articles 11 and 12, we have a full-blown plan for liquidity. So that's, uh, those are the four questions I think every investor should start with. And we haven't talked about cap rate or cash on cash. We haven't talked about any of that stuff. So before we move on to that, Gene, I'm going to keep us on this topic here. So we talked about four things that are absolutely incredibly important. And just to summarize for the listeners, that's continuity, making sure there's a succession plan of who's going to be managing if something should happen to that manager. Two is understanding the sponsor or manager's experience. What kind of skin in the game do they have, either cash or recourse on that loan? And four, of course, what happens if something happens to me as the investor? So, you know, when we're talking about continuity, we're talking about having uh, other managers in place. If it's a single manager operation or organization, you know, typically what I've seen in most of these uh, legal documents is that the manager or sorry, the investors have the right to vote in a new manager. What, what is your recommendation that you like to see or look for in those documents that kind of outlines who's going to be in charge if something should happen? And, and when that actually does come down, you know, it actually does happen in real life. How does that process work for investors on replacing a manager? Well, first of all, there should be two people in the manager. There should be an LLC or it could be an S corporation. It doesn't make any difference who's acting as the managing member. And there should be uh, a second living person. So we don't have to, in the middle of a, of a disaster or catastrophe or stress, figure out who to vote in. You know, the members don't want to be manager. <laughs> If they wanted to be manager, they would have put they would have bought their own property. They don't want to do that. So you need to have someone in place right away. Then uh, my documents say that with a seventy five percent vote, we can uh, um, replace the manager. But what about the what about the day after the event? What about the fact that the lender and other people have documents out there and the operating agreement says that the manager is the only one who can sign the documents Mm -hmm. and now the manager's gone. Mm -hmm. I don't care who you vote in. We're talking, you know, three, four months to solve that problem. Put a second person in there that has the the ability to sign documents and be there. Uh, And then you can take your time and you can worry about who's going to be the uh, who's going to be the replacement. And that second person doesn't have to be a well, let's put it this way. They can be a very minority owner in the manager entity to start with. They're just there for continuity. I think it's very important. And 
A lot of times when you go to the lender, if you don't have a second person in there for continuity, the lender, Fannie or Freddie, depending upon the size of the loan, is going to require you to have a springing member. They're going to require you to go to a corporation, an ongoing corporation, and uh, uh, that has a department like this. And you will have to get that corporation to name a certain officer to be the springing member. Now that officer can come and go, but the title and the place is still there. So if something happens, the lender can immediately go and enforce the springing member provision the next day. And there are full documentation that says the next day the springing member has all control and can write all the, uh, and sign all the documents. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, I don't think you can, I don't think you can say, Stephen, that, well, yeah, if something happens, uh, Larry, will take over. Well, seven years from now, where the hell is Larry? Yep. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't do that. Let's solve that right now. And then we still put in place that you can replace, uh, we can replace the manager. We have one, in, one situation I'm aware of right now where the sponsor died. And um, the, uh, uh, the, a family member of the sponsor was the second person. Okay. So nothing stopped, everything continued on, but the family member really wasn't the answer for long-term. So now we're going ahead and we're voting and we're gonna get a replacement person, but at least it was, there were no hiccups. Of course, of course. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So moving on to the PPM, I know you're really excited to talk through all these different pieces. Walk us through what's important and what goes into that document. This could be a whole day, so we're not gonna we're not gonna do this. Um, yeah, there was a rule for a long time. It's called Guide Five, and Guide Five is part of uh, the securities laws under Regulation D, which is how we do all of our business. And it told you what should be in a private placement memorandum for a real estate offering, and that that guide has been revoked, but we all write our documents kind of the same way. There's, there's some art in writing private placement memorandums, but there's also some, some rules. And I've made this picture. And just quickly, if you're going to go through a PPM, uh, which is the story, this is the first document I write for a client. I write the story. I send it to the client. Do I have the story right? If I do, then I can draft the operating agreement, which are the rules in the subscription agreement. But the first thing you have to have, and it doesn't always have to be in this order, you have to have a description. What are you doing? Are you buying an apartment building? Are you building self-storage, which I did? And you talk all about that. In my documents, a lot of the description of the business ends up in the property information section as an exhibit. I draft documents where exhibit number four to the PPM is the property package that the investor can get that shows the pictures, the rent roll, and all the spreadsheets. That And I, I make that separate because I don't want to have to change this document as we're going through three or four weeks while this is all happening. Due diligence uh, gives you different numbers. So this document is standalone. But description of the business is important. 
the offering terms. We're raising $3 million. The um, minimum investment from any investor is 50000 You can invest more if you want. The offering is going to start on a certain day and continue uh, until someday in the future. Then risks. Actually, the old guide five had risks coming right after <clears throat> the description. You know, if you invest in this, you're going to lose all your money. Okay, well, that's fine. But um, there are all sorts of risks. And generally, Stephen, the risks are in groups. Uh, there's a risk in uh, investing generally in real estate. There are risks related to investing in this particular piece of real estate. This is not all boilerplate. The PPM needs to tell the investor about this investment. I've been in court when, as an expert witness, when someone's been on the stand and they had a PPM and the judge says, I can't even tell what property this is about. Well, that's bad. So what are the risks of this property? What are the risks of the economy during the projected holding period? Uh, what are the risks of the environment? And what are the risks of tax law changes? So it's kind of a, a heavy duty section. And some of it's boilerplate because, you know, like you get into the risks of the tax law, depending upon where we are in the legislative cycle, it might, that section might be the same for two or three years in a row. But real estate and this uh, particular property is pretty important. Then we get into conflicts. And this really relates to the manager's business. Does the manager already have 16 offerings out there? Okay. What are the conflicts if one of those offerings uh, starts falling apart and the manager is asked to fund, uh, fund a manager loan? Uh, does he have to? If he funds it for one, does he have to fund it for all? Uh, what if the manager is a broker, a real estate broker and a syndicator at the same time? What are those conflicts? Uh, what are the conflicts about the manager? Let's say you're a manager and you're out raising money for apartment buildings. And you're just always looking at apartment buildings. Well, which, which offering gets which apartment building? So there's a lot of conflicts. Those are important important sections to read. So, so far what we've talked about really is the PPM is this uh, governing document, or I should say it's the governing story that kind of outlines, story. It right. outlines all the information that an investor would want to know and need to know so they can really understand, well, what is it that I'm investing in? What are these risks that right. are potentially there? What are the offering terms? What 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 is this all about? And then obviously we're going to go further into detail, but just want to make sure people really understand that the the document is really telling the story um, over the rules, which are the offer member or sorry the operating agreement, which we're going to talk about right. a little bit as well. Right. Then we get into the suitability standards. Who can invest? Can we take sophisticated investors? Or is it only for accredited or can it be both? That's fine. Um, sources and uses. There's a chart in there that tells people uh, where the, uh, let's say we raise $2 million. Where does the $2 million get spent? The sources comes from the investors and then the uses in a chart form. And that's very important. So you can compare different, different offerings. Um, distributions and fees. Who gets what? How is the cash distributions uh, 
sent to the investors and what are the fees that the manager gets. I already told you about the the exhibit for the property information. Uh, voting rights. Uh, what authority does the manager have? What authorities do the members have? And I'll just stop there for a second. Um, beginning syndicators usually give extensive voting rights to the investors. And I, I think that's because they're not as comfortable in their money raising skills and they have no track record. Mm -hmm. So they're asking, they're giving the investors a chance to vote on a sale, a refinance or any major leases, but experienced syndicators don't do that. Mm -hmm. And it's not unusual to see an offering where the, uh, the manager makes all the decisions except for modifying the operating agreement and replacing the manager. I, always want the members to have the right to replace the manager. I have been the replacement manager six times in my career, and it's always devastating for the members not to be able to get a replacement and move uh, and move the manager out if we need to. So that's one thing you always should find in an operating agreement. It's such a good reminder to people what they need to be looking for. So as they're going through this document, when it comes to those voting rights, they shouldn't be scared off the fact that the manager is going to be making all those decisions because that's really the reason that they they hired the manager to be able to execute and do this in the first place. Is that right? Right. The manager knows the marketplace. If we're talking about a real estate offering, the manager knows the marketing place, knows uh, this property, knows what's going on. And so we, we, can, we can do that. And if there are voting rights uh, left to the members on a thing like a refinance or a sale, it's usually just a simple majority. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it's not, uh, uh, unanimous. <laughs> it wouldn't have to be that. That'd be terrible because you'd never get anything done. Okay, so majority is common. Liquidity, two, and that was the fourth question, right? What happens if I need my money back? Um, two articles in my operating agreement that talk about liquidity. One is uh, voluntary liquidity. I want to sell my units to someone. Okay. Most operating agreements allow that, a free transferability of the interest uh, after the first year, which is a securities law. And so you go out and find someone and you, you sell your interest to them. Sometimes there's a first right of refusal reserved for the members of the company or the company or the manager, because we might want to keep all the units inside the company. But you can always get rid of your units, at least the economic interest, all the cash flow, you can always sell that to someone. Now, whether the manager lets the buyer of that unit vote is something depending upon each document. Let's say it's a document where only accredited investors can buy in, but you want to sell yours and you sell it to someone who's not accredited investor. That's fine. But the manager will make a decision that that person can't vote. Okay, they get the money, but they just can't vote. That, that happens. And the other one is um, involuntary liquidity. You, um, you're an investor and you get in a lawsuit, uh, you get a divorce, um, you die, something like that where your units are going to move from you to someone else. 
generally we have provisions that the company can step in and uh, be the successful bidder on those units. If there's a bankruptcy, the company can go to the trustee and the document would give the company the first right to buy those units from the trustee. And that's, uh, that's important. Uh, dispute resolution, big, long, maybe four or five pages uh, in the operating agreement about dispute resolution. We get one member, and it happens, who is a pain in the butt and wants to, <laughs> wants to cause everyone problems. So our dispute resolution, Stephen, our process is we're going to keep everything out of court. We're going to go to mediation. We're going to go to arbitration. Uh, we're not going to grant uh, the, this disgruntled member the right to get attorney's fees. We're not going to let them get uh, damages other than just their money back because we've got to protect the company. And so we give the manager the right to use all the assets of the company to fight this disgruntled uh, investor. Okay. Now, if there's a lot of disgruntled investors, we don't need the dispute resolution. We'll just go back to voting rights and we'll vote out the manager. Okay. So a lot of moving parts, but all this stuff is in the story and it's a disclosure document. There's a rule that says in regulation D you have to disclose all the information. So we put it in writing in something called the PPM. Our PPM is the story. Exhibit one, the investor gets is the certificate of formation in the state showing that the LLC is properly formed. Exhibit two is the operating agreement, which goes through and talks about the rules of all the story. This is not a legally binding document. No one signs this other than the manager says, this is my story. Investors don't sign the PPM. It's the operating agreement that goes into detail on how all this is. How is the distribution going to be handled? How are the fees going to be handled? That's, that's what's in the operating, operating agreement. And then exhibit three is the subscription agreement and offering questionnaire. The subscription agreement basically is the offer that investor makes and says, yes, I'll, I'll give you my $50,000. I'd like to invest in your deal. And in support of my offer, here is the questionnaire that tells you my experience, am I sophisticated, am I accredited, should I be in your deal? And the manager has the absolute right to say no. This, the risks in this deal aren't, aren't, doesn't make it suited for you. Okay, that's fine. For example, I'm 72 years old. If I'm going to invest in my IRA in your project, Stephen, mm -hmm. that's going to last 10 years, mm -hmm. you should turn me down. Because I need to start taking mandatory withdrawals from my uh, IRA. And uh, that might be a problem if all my money's tied up with you. How are you going to do that? So you need to look at, uh, you need to look at suitability. And then the last exhibit, of course, is the property information. So that's why, as you said, Stephen, it's a long document. The book that you get or whatever you get online, or however the sponsor distributes the information to the investors, is lengthy. Clearly, 100 to 150 pages when you count all the exhibits. 
So that's a useful thing to do. And I'll tell you, Stephen, one of the biggest mistakes that investors make is not reading the documents. Yeah. And it's so important because sometimes people get overwhelmed, Gene, because we just went through a lot of information and this is at a super high level. Right. So mm-hmm. it can sometimes be overwhelming because the intention of this document is to disclose all the potential risk, all of the information that the investor needs to understand how the uh, rules are going to be executed and and therefore how this project is going to be delivered for investors. So right. going into it before making an investment, it's absolutely critical that you read through the entire document, not because there is a lack of trust or that you believe that the uh, manager is going to slip something over on you, but just for the fact that this is the governing document that is setting the expectations for you as the investor in advance of making mm-hmm. that investment. So by signing the document, by going in and and agreeing to the operating agreement, you're agreeing to those expectations the manager set out for you. If there's right. questions about it, that's the perfect time for you to be able to go in and and say, "Hey, well, I'm actually unclear about this provision or, you know, you mentioned that uh, it would be important to have continuity plan. Uh, I'd like to actually see something that's maybe a little bit more detailed than what you have. Perfect. No problem. We can then execute, you know, some right. additions to the operating agreement, even if it the the plan has already been put in place. But by getting clear on what those expectations are in advance, you have the opportunity to raise those concerns or or sign on with 100 percent confidence that you understand what's expected. That's right. And I've done um, one particular podcast in the last couple months where we we did uh, three one hour sessions on this one hour on the PPM, one hour on the operating agreement and an hour on the subscription agreement and questions and uh, looked at some clauses and read the words, you know, how does how does this work? So that uh, it, there's a lot more than this. But I would suggest that before you invest, uh, if you're an investor, um, find yourself a PPM. Get on someone's radar and have them send you a PPM so you can read the document. I'm not sure you, well, I'm, I was going to say I'm not sure you should invest in the first PPM you read. I think you should uh, read a couple and get educated and do that. Now, attorneys don't send out, I get asked a lot, will you send me a sample PPM? No. Uh, The PPMs I draft are for my clients. They're the property of my clients. And so I don't send those out. So the, the place that you find a PPM is to find a syndicator and get on their radar and ask them for their documents. That's fine. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I I do encourage people if they're going to make an investment to read through the documents, read through them multiple times to potentially have their counsel take a look at the documents and make sure that they have full understanding. And so if it happens to you happen to be in a situation where you're ready to invest in your first deal and you're trying to get familiar with the 150 pages, you know, it's not exactly the best time, but you still can. So what would be your advice to Gene to folks who feel like they've got a good understanding, they're ready to move forward, but they've got some questions? Who should they turn to to ask those questions when it comes to these documents? Their own attorney. If you're an investor, their own attorney. Now, sometimes, sometimes one of my clients will call me and say, hey, Stephen is a potential investor and he's got a couple of questions on 
uh, how 1031 works in this deal. Can, can we get on the phone together and talk to him? Uh, that, might, that might very well be okay. The issue is the attorney who drafts the documents has the sponsor as the client. We, I have to stay out of having an investor think I'm advising them and they become my client. I have to totally stay away from that. But with, with the client on the same phone call, we can, we can explain things. So that's, that's extremely, uh, extremely possible. Yeah. Well, that's, that's definitely really good advice. I mean, you can ask questions to the attorney who drafted them, but the person who's representing your interests has to be your attorney. So as we're wrapping up things, I am so grateful. Definitely want to have you on again as we dive deeper into some of these more advanced topics for people, Gene, but how can people get in touch with you if they're interested in, uh, in working with you or, you know, learning more about some of your experience and, and what you're up to on the, uh, on the syndication attorney front. Trowbridgelawgroup.com is our website. And um, there we have a number of things going on. Um, and you can reach me at Gene at Trowbridge Law Group. We have something called Trowbridge Talks, where I actually interview people, um, my clients, people that are in the business. And someday I'll reach out to you. I, I, I turn around and interview everyone who's interviewed me. And so we do that. Someday I'll reach out to you, Stephen, on that. And that's called Trowbridge Talks, or TLG Talks, excuse me. And that's always uh, noon California time on Thursday. Perfect. Well, that sounds good. We'll include links to all of that in the show notes for everybody so that they can get uh, get access to that. And thank you so much, Gene. And I look forward to the next time we get to hang out. And as a reminder to all you investors out there, go take some action with this information you learned. Go dive a little bit deeper, go read through a PPM and uh, get familiar with this stuff so that you're ready to pull the trigger when you find a deal you like. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level. 